You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's been about a week since teams with the Environmental Protection Agency began scouring the burnout areas in Lahaina Town for any hazardous material that needs to be removed before families can be allowed back into the area. This morning, we talked to Tom Dunkelman, EPA Incident Commander, about this necessary process. It has surveyed some 300 properties so far, and interestingly, what has emerged as different from any other previous disaster site is dealing with lithium batteries and electric charging stations. That's what we learned from our conversation that we had with Dunkelman this morning. We have teams of more than 150 people on the ground. We've been tasked by FEMA to remove hazardous materials from both residential and commercial structures. The types of materials that we remove are, you know, any of the typical chemicals that people might have in their home, in their garage, under their kitchen sink, include things like propane tanks, batteries, paints, fertilizers, pesticides. And our teams, you know, literally go property by property by hand. There's no heavy equipment. This is all done by hand. Searching for any of these chemicals that might have survived the fire. We remove the chemical containers from the burned parcels. We have a staging area outside of town, and so all of the chemicals are transported to that staging area. You know, a couple things I should say is that before we enter any property, there are some things we evaluate before we put our crews in there. One, obviously, is it's safe for our crews to enter. So we have recon teams that are out in advance, you know, looking for any types of physical or chemical hazards that might exist. And then our crews are all wearing full personal protective equipment, including gloves, booties, white Tyvek suits, respirators, and hard hats. You know, the other thing that we take great precautions about is that there may be cultural and historical items present on the property. So we have cultural monitors who accompany our crews at all times, and they advise our crews of anything that they need to be aware of and stay away from. So, you know, I I can't stress that enough. That's an issue that we take very seriously. All of our field crews, before they go in the field, receive a full day of cultural training. So that is a very important issue for us. I know the federal mortuary response team, you know, went through that area, you know, looking for human remains. But how does that work when your teams go through there? I mean, I don't know, you know, how much they're sifting through the ashes where there may be, let's say, bone fragments, that kind of thing. Yeah, we're really not sifting. You know, like I said, all of our work is done by hand. But, you know, we're looking for any type of container, chemical container that might have survived the fire. You know, we do have procedures in place, you know, that if we came across any remains, which we haven't, that we would reach out directly to the police department. The containers that we recover from the properties, we place into trucks. The trucks deliver the materials to our staging area. That location, they're repackaged into DOT shippable containers, which are typically some type of a drum. And then at our location, we will have uh, shipping containers. And so the drums go directly into shipping containers. And then we have an arrangement with the Coast Guard where they can uh, inspect our containers directly at our staging area to facilitate the off-island shipment. And then how soon do you think that the waste material will be shipped out? I don't have an answer for that. I think that's something we're, we're still working on. You know, we have to accumulate a significant amount of material essentially to fill the container. And so we're, we're still working on those logistics. And then how about just general debris? You know, because, you know, Maui's a small island. It's not like you can truck a large volume of what's left over from this fire, you know, to another state somewhere. Have there been discussions about that? You know, the ash and debris are not part of the EPA mission. We're strictly these hazardous materials. And so everything that we collect will go to the U.S. mainland for disposal at appropriate locations. But we're not involved in the ash and debris. What about the areas that burned up in Kula? We have. We've completed that part of our work. We had about 25 or so parcels up there, and they've they've all been completed. You know, the other thing I'd mention is that as of yesterday evening, we had completed almost 300 parcels in total. What about the debris that might be associated with the harbor? I mean, I know the Coast Guard, you know, has booms up, you know, that kind of thing just to protect the nearshore environment. But what's the coordination like working with the Coast Guard? Again, that is not directly part of our mission, but we are coordinating with the Coast Guard. We're giving them some ideas about how we've 
coordinated all of our data collection. As you can imagine, there's a huge amount of data that gets collected in all of this. And we've given them some ideas about how we've approached the, the cultural resources. And we've also given them some ideas, you know, logistically about the transport and shipment of the waste. What would you say is the most difficult thing when, you know, teams like this go into an area following a disaster? Well, you know, obviously it's very hard work. You know, they're in full protective equipment. It's very hot here. And so, you know, we are having to just monitor their overall well-being under these difficult working conditions. But, you know, it's hard physical work, but it's also emotional work. A lot of our crews are local people. And so I think it's just, you know, people realize what a disaster happened here. And I think it's, it's a little bit emotionally draining for them as well as very physically taxing. Yes, I mean, if you have a connection to that area, I'm sure it's doubly difficult. And as far as the actual day for these workers, I mean, how early, you know, do you get out in the field and how late in the evening do you wrap up? It's a full day. It's, you know, I don't want to put an hour on it because it varies a little bit from day to day, but it's, it's pretty much an entire day. So it's a very long, hot, tiring day for all of the field crews. And all the protective gear that your teams are wearing, I mean, was all that available here on island or did you have to bring it in? No, the bulk of it we've had to bring in and we just received another shipment yesterday because we were starting to run low. And so we bring it in from, you know, EPA offices on the West Coast for the most part. And what can you say about just the capacity for doing, you know, this kind of work whether we need a, a workforce established, you know, so that when there is a natural disaster or human-made disaster that, that we can respond in a way without having to wait for days or weeks for teams to fly in. You know, there are a lot of local resources here. There are a lot of hazmat contractors on the island who we've tapped into. And, you know, a significant part of our team consists of these local people who have previous hazmat training. So I think there are significant resources that exist here on island. And, you know, I think there's always going to be a need to, to supplement that. But, you know, I think we've been doing pretty well at that. Anything else you want to say just about this concerted effort by the counties, the state, you know, and, and the feds when you respond to something like this? You know, we have a long history, EPA does, in responding to natural disasters and particularly wildfires. And so we work very closely with FEMA. We have a lot of experience working with the Army Corps of Engineers. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's really, it's a local event, typically run by the counties. And so, you know, I think all of these agencies are here to support the county in, in the disaster response. Anything else that we need to be looking toward? You know, the one thing that I'll, I'll mention, you know, we have a very different waste stream here that we haven't encountered before in large numbers, and that's all of the lithium-ion batteries and the, the power walls associated with, you know, recharging stations for electric vehicles. So that's a little bit of a new wrinkle for us. You know, these batteries can be flammable and explosive, and so it's something that we're being very careful about and are having to develop new ways to, to handle this waste stream. And I, I think we've been very effective in doing it, but it has been a new challenge for us. We don't really recall it being such a significant issue in our previous work, but it's been, you know, something that we've had to adapt to and come up with the right tactics to, to handle these batteries. And so that's something that we feel is progressing well, but it's, it's been a new challenge for us. Okay, so maybe there needs to be some policy discussions about these types of uh, devices and materials going forward. I think it's going to be a, a learning curve, and I think people... Hopefully we'll, we'll learn from the, the things that we've been able to figure out here. And so certainly, you know, down the road, we'll communicate with people that the challenges we faced and, you know, how we went about addressing it. That was Tom Dunkelman, Incident Commander for the Environmental Protection Agency, who talked to us this morning about the disposal of hazardous material left behind from the devastating Maui wildfires. Uh, Dunkelman says a number of... Uh, uh, lithium batteries and electric charging stations eclipse anything that the agency saw with California's Paradise Campfire. He says they've encountered hundreds of such hazards, and the fact that all this has to be shipped across the Pacific for disposal creates other challenges.
Support for HPR comes from Pacific American Lumber on Oahu, offering wood flooring from UA Floors. Its Hawaiian collection of engineered wood features mango and monkey pod from Hawaii Island. P-A-C-A-M-Lumber.com. This Saturday, HPR continues our Indie 808 performance series with local alternative pop band Kennedy Taylor and the Electric Pancakes live in our Atherton studio in Honolulu. The band is donating 100% of ticket proceeds to support Maui relief efforts. Doors open at 7 p.m. Show begins at 8. Purchase your tickets online at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Among the hazards of fighting a fire is the presence of unknown dangerous chemicals like pesticides, and in flooded conditions, those can be released in the environment, creating more of a public threat. Disposal can be expensive for a small business, so the state agriculture department is offering farmers, landscaping, uh, landscapers, and pest control operators or other businesses a chance to turn in any stockpile of potentially toxic substances on September 30th for free. But it needs to know by the close of business this Friday what types of chemicals. We talked to Adam Williams from the State Agriculture Department about the deadline and the needed effort to get the hazardous chemicals out of harm's way. So the city and county of Honolulu, they already have a well-established household hazardous waste disposal event. These events are designed for residents. So if you are like a homeowner or you live in a condo or an apartment and you have some pesticides that you no longer use and want to get rid of, you would take them to the city and county of Honolulu hazardous waste disposal events. However, currently there is no mechanism for commercial operators to dispose of their waste. So that's why we started this program. The last time it was just a pilot program approximately 15 years ago. Since then, there has not been any other avenue except for individual companies or private applicators to talk with hazardous waste contractors one-on-one. However, when they go that route, price is very expensive on their own. But most of the time, these commercial applicators will just allow the product to stay in storage because it's very expensive to dispose of these types of products. And, you know, over time, these packages break down or could break down and can eventually lead to leaks or spills or potential impacts to human health or animals. Yeah. And there's also the threat, these chemicals possibly getting in our groundwater And then if there is a wildfire, you know, you don't want our firefighters to be exposed to some of these chemicals, whether they be pesticides on a farm or, you know, a landscaper. Yeah, that is true. Regardless of the use of the pesticide in some type of a natural disaster, such as a fire, flood, or some other severe weather event, you would not want these types of products being released into the environment. You know, for example, contaminating soil or getting into groundwater, entering the sewer system, and then eventually flowing to the ocean. That would not be the best situation. And then when people do drop this off on the designated days, are you urging any type of precautions they need to take? Or how do your handlers deal with the hazards? Most of the commercial applicators are familiar with proper handling of pesticides. However, we do have several resources on the webpage to show individuals how to properly pack and transport the items from their location to the collection event. So if there's, for example, maybe there's a mom and pop farm and they're not familiar with moving the chemicals, they just know how to use them. On our website, we have a great deal of information on how to make sure the product is labeled, how to inventory it, and then how to actually pack it and then transport it. And then also information about how to prepare a spill kit. So just in case there's some minor accident or some minor spill, they can have a spill kit in preparation to contain the spill. We do have many resources available. I just jumped on your website, and yeah, you've got everything from frequently asked questions to, you know, the transport and the schedule. So really good, useful information if there are businesses out there who may have some of these chemicals on hand and want to dispose of them properly. Yes. And gosh, so when this was a pilot project, why didn't it go forward? Do you know the history? That's a good question. Unfortunately, I think it just came down to funding. 
Beyond that, I wasn't with the department at that time, so I'm not 100% sure if there were any other factors, but I do know funding was one of the issues. Certainly, with the Lahaina wildfires, safety is top of mind. You know, whether you live on Maui or on another island, you folks just want to get these hazardous chemicals out of harm's way. Yes, that is correct. So my primary role here is a pesticide inspector. And then just from the years of doing this job and looking at different storage units and the conditions of some of these products that have been sitting on the shelves for 10, 15, or 20-plus years, I saw that there was a need for this program to exist because, you know, natural disasters can happen at any time. And if these products were to be involved in one of those natural disasters, you know, we're all going to be exposed to it either through our groundwater, through the air, if it's like a fire or something like that, you know, contamination in the ocean. So potentially some of the food that we eat from the ocean. So yes, environmental uh, damage and potential effects to human and animals is of extreme importance. And that's why we decided to bring this program back. Now, the goal is not to make this a pilot program. Ultimately, we want this to be a recurring program. However, as I've tried to state to um, many of the folks that I've presented to, it's really up to individuals to participate. If we have a low turnout or a lack of participation, it's going to look as though the program isn't needed and we may not receive further funding. However, if we do have a large turnout and we can collect a great deal of these pesticides that are sitting on storage shelves, then we can show that this program is valuable, that there is a need, and look how much is out there. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. So we really need a good turnout to to prove that this is of value because the data that we can collect. Now, we're not collecting. So the Department of Agriculture is not collecting any individual or business data. The only data that we're looking at is what types of pesticides were disposed and how much. And that information is what we can use to take to the legislature to show that here's what we, we were able to remove. Here's how much of it. And we want to make this more of a permanent program. So it's really going to depend on the public's turnout and participation. Okay. And so the, the quick snapshot, uh, Oahu gets its date at the end of September, and then you're still in the process of setting up dates for the rest of the islands? That is correct. There is one new update. The Maui, we have secured a location. We're still working on finalizing details. However, the Maui event will be held in December of this year. So it'll be kind of spaced out. Yes. Our contractor needs approximately two months to move in between islands just because of the amount of, you know, as far as transporting people and equipment, it takes time to to set all that up and to make arrangements to get it shipped. So, yeah, they need approximately two months in between events. So with the Oahu event launching in September, that'll give them enough time in order to get things moved and set up and arranged over there on Maui. And then potentially looking at the end of January, early February for Big Island events. But that's still tentative because we're working out details. The only thing I can say for sure beyond the September 30th event here on Oahu will be the December 2023 event on Maui. Tentative are going to be Big Island and then potentially Kauai or Molokai will be next. Is there a chance, though, if you get a big response at the end of September that maybe you might hold a second event for Oahu? Probably not this year. But if we do get a large turnout, then we'll have the information that we need to show that this needs to be a permanent program because there are more people out there that couldn't participate but wanted to participate. So, yes, if we were to get a large turnout, that would be great. I have to ask, where does all this stuff go once you collect it? So our contractor, they will take care of all the transportation packaging of these pesticides. What they're going to do is they ship these to the mainland. There is a hazardous EPA-approved, the Environmental Protection Agency Mm -hmm. approved, hazardous waste incinerator. These products will go there, they'll be incinerated, and that'll pretty much be the end of them. We'll get a final waste manifest to just show that these products were actually delivered, uh, accepted, and destroyed properly. Yeah, Yeah, because we don't want to have people dispose of these things in our storm drains or just pour it off somewhere on the ground because that would not be good. No, not at all. We've had situations where the public has found bottles of, so there's different levels of pesticides. There's like, uh, it's called a general use pesticide, which means you don't need any kind of license or special training. And then you have a restricted use pesticide, which these are, you do need to have a special license in order Mm -hmm. to purchase or use these products. And so we had a situation uh, maybe a year or so ago 
where there was a bottle of one of these restricted-use pesticides left on the side of the road. Thank goodness someone did find it and turned it into our department, and we were able to get it disposed of. But, yes, that is a concern. Someone may no longer want to be in business, and they have no idea how to get rid of these pesticides, so they may take it into their own hands and just dig a hole somewhere. You know, through my inspections, I've seen burned tiles of pesticide Mm. containers. I've seen leaking containers. I've seen products that are in deteriorated containers and just sitting in a bag that's leaking inside a storage unit. So these are real possibilities that I've actually seen with my own eyes. And yes, we want to give these commercial applicators an avenue for proper disposal so that they don't have to take things into their own hands and potentially pour them down a storm drain or bury them somewhere or burn them. Yes, that is a a real possibility. And that was Adam Williams, who's with the pesticide program at the State Agriculture Department. He urges farmers or companies to get rid of their stockpile of old pesticides or chemicals by turning them in at the end of the month. That effort kickstarts here on Oahu and will be held across the state. Uh, Look for a link to more information about the registration deadline, uh, which is this Friday, on the conversation page of our website later today. Trash or treasure? Well, lots of debris has been generated by the fires in Lahaina and Kula. And what may look like charred debris could be a historical artifact and something of value. <clears throat> Here to talk about that is HPR reporter Catherine Cluett pactel Good morning. Good morning. So some of this stuff is actually, what, washing up uh, on shores of some of the other islands? It is. So objects from the Lahaina fires are washing up on neighbor islands, um, Molokai, uh, and Lanai so far, um, as well as Kaho Olave, are geographically the most likely to see items from Lo- the Lahaina fire washing up. Um, no one is sure how much, maybe, you know, what, what type of items might have survived the fires when these items might be showing up. Um, but raising awareness and educating folks on what to do if you find these items is what experts are emphasizing right now. Experts are considering everything that's found to be worth saving. Uh, Pulama Lima is executive director of Moloka'i's Ka'ipu Makani Cultural Heritage Center. She's also a curator of archaeology at the Bishop Museum, but she was speaking to me in her Ka'ipu Makani capacity. She's volunteered to collect items from Lahaina that are found on Moloka'i. And she stresses that it's not for us to decide what's of value. When I asked her how people might be able to determine whether something they think might be from the fire is something that should be saved, here's what she said. It depends on what the the Lahaina community places value on. I would hate if I was the person to have to make that decision in telling people what to save and what not to save. May be personal items versus just regular pieces of wood that are charred. But the event in and of itself is of historical value. And so the things that are the result of that event is also hide in the same esteem. If you're looking at it from a historical perspective, right? One day, for example, Lahaina community wants to dedicate some type of memorial or exhibition of the events that happened in Lahaina. The things that were actually salvageable and are safe for handling just a piece of burnt wood is is still part of that history. And so it's not for me to decide what is considered valuable, but rather for the Lahaina community. And I know it gets hard in terms of temporary spacing issues. Here in Molokai, you know, if it's going to be plastic or large things floating up and we really can't house it, I think that's sort of where the conversation would need to have with the Lahaina community when they're ready. But for now, what we do find we're holding on to in the event that the Ohana from Lahaina want those back. You know, that's so interesting, you know, because uh, I guess I, I'm just trying to process that, yeah, this stuff is already turning up uh, on beaches uh, on other islands. It is. And Lanai was actually first to see some of those items, I believe, um, just a few days after the fire, a photo, um, I believe, blew over, and that was actually able to be reconnected with the person um, in the photo. So that was um, 
kind of a, a good ending story, but there are items washing up. Um, so as Kulama Lima says, space may become an issue in the future, but right now she's evaluating and storing whatever is found. So far, um, one piece of charred um, plank of wood with some bolts in it was found on Molokai. I'm not sure um, the other items that have been found on Lanai, uh, but those are, um, it's, they are washing up. FEMA also has experts ready and waiting to assist. Lori Foley is coordinator of the Heritage Emergency National Task Force. That's a public-private partnership between FEMA and the Smithsonian Institution to protect culturally sensitive objects during and after disasters. So one of the first instincts when you see something on the beach, of course, is to reach down and pick it up. But Foley advises full safety precautions when handling any items found from that may be from the fire because of the hazardous chemicals that were likely exposed to in the fire on these items. She says actually to wear full body PPE, long sleeves, long pants, boots, or sturdy shoes. She says no slippers, N95 mask or face covering, and most importantly, disposable gloves whenever handling items that are found. So before you pick up these items you think might be washed up from Lahaina, here is what to know. I think it's always safe to be cautious and to err on the side of caution. If it's something like a gasoline container or something like that, which is considered a hazardous item right now, those can be set aside and alert the county officials or the local emergency manager about what has been found. But for items that you're not sure about, I would certainly try to get them out of harm's way, making absolutely sure that you're wearing gloves and that you're not handling with bare hands. Again, you don't know what the makeup of the content of the ashes is, and you don't know what the effect of the seawater might have been on either helping remove those chemicals or actually driving those chemicals further into those objects. There will be teams or subject matter experts that will be coming to Oahu and no doubt Maui to help advise on objects that might be found. And so FEMA is still working with Maui County to figure out those protocols and the best way to approach it to keep people safe, but to be able to reunite items that might belong to someone if they are a cherished item that provides so many memories. You know, the one thing that popped in my mind is, you know, uh, that the uh, incident they had in Fukushima, Japan, you know, we were still getting things washing up on shores months after that uh, earthquake. Uh, so it, it's just, oh, it's just fascinating to see that, uh, you know, this stuff is turning up on our shores. It's true. And, you know, so many museums were uh, destroyed in Lahaina. And so some of these items might be of excuse me, real historical and cultural value aside from just being um, items from the fire that were burned. So Foley generally recommends washing items in fresh water that have been floating in the ocean. For preservation of photos, she suggests rinsing them in cool, clean, preferably distilled water in a series of aluminum pans uh, and air drying them without heat or direct sunlight. So being very careful not to um, expose them to anything that might cause damage to those photos. And one of the big questions that's sort of lingering is what do you do after you find these items? Of course, Pulama Lima is collecting them on Molokai. On Lanai, the Lanai Cultural, uh, Culture and Heritage Center, uh, Executive Director Shelley Preza did share a document with some guidance for Lanai residents, but the Heritage Center isn't able to hold those items. So the Hawaii Museums Association and the Maui Historical Society are working together along with some other organizations to kind of come up with some protocols. Um, and in the meantime, the Bishop Museum is clearing some holding space as a location for items that are found statewide. Yes, you know, we did talk with DJ Mailer uh, last month about, you know, this very thing. And she says that, you know, they've made the offers to help uh, when the time is right. Uh, when their expertise is needed. So, yeah, interesting issues that are uh, uh, arising out of this wildfire. But thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. We have been talking to HPR's Catherine Kluwit-Pactel about the historic artifacts that may survive in the aftermath of the Maui wildfires. Uh, look for her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org.
support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Group International, presenting Brazilian songstress Bebel Gilberto, live at Hawaii Theater, September 21st. Ticket information at hawaiitheater.com. Today on The Daily, according to my colleague Nick Fandos, in New York, the arrival of more than 100,000 migrants seeking asylum over the past year has become a political crisis for the state's Democratic leaders. I'm Mike Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Zippy's Restaurants, partnering with the American Red Cross of Hawaii to help support those affected by Maui's wildfires. More information about donations at zippies.com. Hawaii is the only state without a fire marshal. That is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Thomas Heaton is on with us today. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes, so that is the headline. We don't have a fire marshal, but what does a fire marshal do? Well, a fire marshal is in charge, essentially, of the very broad realm of fire prevention. Um, While, of course, they vary... Their roles and mandates and powers vary from state to state. They prevent fires through enforcing fire codes. They investigate fires, and they also inspect um, buildings and the like for, um, you know, keeping up with those fire codes. And they also work on other things like training, making sure that firefighters are all um, trained properly and have the best training possible. And then also they work on... Um, things like wildfire prevention even, um, with working with the community and acting as an interface between the state and the um, county fire departments. So we used to have a fire marshal's office. Yes, we did. Um, But in 1978, the legislature decided to disband the state fire marshal's office um, and essentially kind of pass on most of the duties that was held by the state fire marshal's office to the county fire departments, um, which all have their own fire prevention bureaus. Um, And in doing that, the following year in 1979, they set up the State Fire Council, which is overseen by the four county fire chiefs and is run by two part-time administrators, uh, which has kind of raised questions now, and and actually before the um, devastating fires in Lahaina, um, has raised questions over well, actually, do we really need a state fire marshal? And if we do, what do we need in that state fire marshal's office? Well, you know, your story uh, highlights a particular incident where you, uh, you had the what the fire alarm system at uh, a Big Island elementary school that was broken for two years, and that's against state fire code. Yes. So what in, inadvertently, I guess, um, in disbanding the state fire marshal's office, it essentially raised some jurisdictional issues. So that um, school's fire alarm system being broken for two years while the fire department on Big Island knew well that it was a problem, they couldn't do any enforcement activities because, of course, all the schools in Hawaii are run by the State Department of Education. So it's out of the county's jurisdiction to make enforcement or take enforcement procedures or anything like that on a on a state entity. So it raises issues in that sense as well. Well, I'm just surprised that the Department of Education didn't hurry up and fix that, but oh well. Uh, but yeah, so, so this is, uh, though, a, an issue that's probably going to be revisited a, as a result of these fires in um, Lahaina. Yes, absolutely. At a state fire council meeting uh, last year, of which they have four each year, um, the chair, Chief Kazwa Todd of uh, the Big Island Fire Department, said that, um, you know, it appears that this bill, which uh, was introduced in 2021 and 2022 and was killed, um, is going to, you know, go back before lawmakers and it looks like they'll finally be able to set up a working group to 
really decide what Hawaii needs in a state fire marshal's office if they decide that Hawaii needs one um, so that they can better coordinate moving into the future um, between county fire departments and even across state lines. And it was interesting that uh, the proposals included representatives from other state agencies, the the state airports fire chief and um, uh, a DLNR. So, yeah, certainly uh, something that, you know, there'll be discussions about uh, and maybe another bill. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I think that we can anticipate more more and more bills related to fire and wildfire coming into the next uh, legislative session, including perhaps some bigger asks from the state um, department, fire departments. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Thomas Heaton with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read that story at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. And for this week's Mono Minute, we hear the song of one of the rarest birds in the world, the QEQ, or Maui Parrotbill. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart. The Kiwikiu, or Maui Parrotbill, is found only in the highest elevation forests on Maui. At barely more than 100 remaining individuals in the wild, it's one of the rarest and most endangered birds in the world. It's also one of the most unusual. As their name implies, the upper bill of these birds is sharply hooked like that of a parrot, and helped by their strong neck muscles, they use this bill to shred and crush small branches and twigs of a variety of native tree species in search of their favorite food, tasty grubs that live under the bark. These stoutly built green and yellow birds rarely sing, but when they do, it's the best way for biologists to detect them. Kiwikiu are currently restricted to a relatively small patch of rainforest on Haleakala, generally above the elevations where mosquitoes carrying avian malaria might pose a threat, but unfortunately the mosquitoes are moving up in elevation with global warming. An attempt was made in 2019 to translocate some birds to other forests on Maui to help expand the population, but most of these birds were bitten by disease-carrying mosquitoes and died within a few weeks of release. Amazingly, a lone male from this group was recently found alive and well after having not been seen for almost two years. One reason it's difficult to help increase the populations of these birds is that they have at most one baby per year, and then the juveniles are dependent on their parents for 12 months or longer. A debate is ongoing about the best ways to save this bird from extinction, which could happen in the next decade or two if nothing is done. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Biology Department. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Hawaii Audubon Society, working to protect Hawaii's native wildlife through programs and projects such as its Kolei account. Learn more about programs and volunteering at hiaudubon.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mars Cafe, we find out how low-Earth orbit satellites play a key communications role on Maui. We'll hear how teams on the ground on Maui quickly mobilize Starlink ground stations to connect to the Internet. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. signed a bill into law that establishes a five-year pilot program to help with the diagnosis and treatment of those with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, or FASD. It's the first state initiative to address the disorder in 14 years. 
An estimated 71,000 people in Hawaii could be helped by the program. The Conversations, Russell Subiano talked with Dr. Ann Yabusaki. She founded uh, the nonprofit Hawaii FASD Action Group. Medical guidelines now state that no alcohol is appropriate during pregnancy. We also talked with Jeremy and Tara Daniel, who are raising a daughter with the disorder. We start with the Daniels. One of the challenges that we face as parents is that it's really hard to understand how she sees the world. She sees the world differently than you and I see the world. And fortunately for us, and this is going to sound like a strange thing to say, but fortunately for us, our daughter has enough delays that people can visibly see very quickly or they can evaluate for themselves very quickly that she has delays. And so they are able to treat her with a little bit more compassion than maybe somebody who does have the appearance of having delays. We call this an invisible disability because normally people look normal, they talk normal, they sound normal, they have a regular kind of range in terms of IQ, but they're not typical but they get judged as if they were. Our daughter, you know, people understand that she's maybe not neurotypical when they meet her. And so she gets a little bit more grace. She gets a little bit more compassion. But some of the hard things in, in parenting her are, I'll give you some of the heartbreaking things. As a parent, you know, sometimes she doesn't understand why people don't want to connect with her. She doesn't understand why she makes an attempt to make a friend and you know, it's not reciprocated, which is really, really hard. You know, in 2018, during our, our fall break, our three kids were running in and out of the house, going to friends' houses, late nights, pool parties, going to the beach, all of those things. And Briar just sat on the couch and didn't receive any invitations to go anywhere. So those are some of the, I think, the biggest challenges is that she wants to be mainstream and she wants to be plugged into everything. And sometimes she just can't. I'll just add, specific to FASD, some of the things that are difficult are there is no understanding of cause and effect. You know, if we cross the road without looking both ways, we might get hit by a car. Well, that example for Briar, they struggle with abstract thinking. So if I were to say, when you cross a street, you need to look both ways, that only applies to the street that we're standing in front of at the moment. It doesn't apply to other streets that she's then going to come across in future days. So when she was young and, you know, two or three years old and we would stop at the street, we had to teach her that whenever you would walk on black, because that was asphalt, right? Whenever you would walk on the black street, you had to stop to look both ways because you couldn't just say a street. So abstract concepts are very difficult. Cause and effect, they don't understand. They're very impulsive. Individuals with an FASD, they know a lot. So you can ask them the rules, you can ask them to recite what you just told them, and they can tell you exactly what you wanna hear, but then putting that knowledge into action is where their disability lies. Thanks for sharing that, because I think the average person may even think that FASD and, say, autism are almost interchangeable. Do you as parents, do you kind of encounter that misconception as well? Oh, absolutely. And I think a lot of it is because there's not a lot of awareness around FASD. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is much more common than actually autism and spina bifida and Down syndrome combined, I think was the last stat that was shared. What's difficult is that a lot of times an individual with an FASD, it looks like a behavioral issue. And so you think, well, you teach them not to do it and then you correct the behavior. But any amount of alcohol while pregnant that is consumed can cause permanent brain damage. So this isn't a stage, this isn't a bad day, this isn't a bad scenario, this is permanent brain damage that these kids have to live with every day. You bring up a really good point. Autism is one of those kind of umbrella categories that I think people are somewhat familiar with, and it's easy to lump somebody under that umbrella, but that's what happens in the school system, and that's what happens. That's why Dr. Ann and others have been so influential and so important in the state, because they're helping people understand that the same treatments that you would offer somebody who was on the autism spectrum. They do not work for somebody on the fetal alcohol spectrum. They just don't. But it, it is very easy to kind of visually or, or if you're uneducated about the effects of it, it is easy for medical providers, for educators to lump them into the same category, give them the same medications, do the same behavioral therapies and those kinds of things. They simply don't work. You have to treat them differently. Dr. Ann, why do you think that this is such an underserviced disability in our state? You know, I've been asking that question for a long time, and many of us who advocate for FASD do. You know, there was no really federal effort, for example, until about 2000, when the Center for Excellence was established for FASD. And that was sunsetted in 2016. 
at that point, that's that's when I began to learn about FASD. So there's no really organized, concerted effort, even at the national level, to establish a diagnostic protocol that we can all agree on, to establish services and research, even the surveillance system. How many people do we have with FASD? Because we can't diagnose them. People are not diagnosing them. And so there are just a few states, a handful of states that have diagnostic centers. So we've been pushing Hawaii to please do something, be one of those states. So the significance of this is that they're beginning to understand it takes a team to do the diagnostics. And it would be a physician, it would be a psychologist to do neurological testing, to neuropsychological testing. It would be a speech and language specialist who would understand what are they understanding in speech versus what are they speaking in speech. And, you know, we also have OT because there are a lot of sensory disorders that can occur. So there should be a team of folks. And so this effort is very significant for the state. Jeremy and Tara, how does the establishment of this pilot program that Governor Green just signed in July, how does that help you and your child and other families raising children with FASD? Well, I think it's a great step one. I don't know that it necessarily will immediately have impact, but I think that creating the awareness of the fact that it is prevalent, that it is an issue, that it does contribute to other social issues and social challenges, approximately one in 20, that's that's what the statistics are, are showing nationally is, is maybe one in 20 kindergartners are impacted by an FASD. To put that in perspective with autism, it's probably closer to one in 40, but there are lots of services and there's lots of funding and there are a lot of programs around autism and people understand that a little bit more. So we're hoping that by creating more awareness in the world of FASD and the prevalence of FASD and the challenges behind FASD, that it will have an impact for our daughter and other children who need the help, that need the supports moving forward. I will say that Raising a child with an FASD is really hard in a lot of ways, but one of the things that makes it even more difficult is that there are no supports in place. So everything that we've had to find for our daughter has been because we've had to create it or we've had to go into the schools and tell the teachers that before they work with her during the school year, we want them to have a training to understand what it means to be living with an FASD. And every time we've done that, at the end, the teachers will say, thank you so much, this helps us understand her. And I can think of so many other students I work with that this seems to fit. So it is very underdiagnosed. A lot of these kids are diagnosed with ADHD or ODD. And what's hard with that is the ways that you would help an individual with an ADHD versus an ODD is very different than the way that you would work with a child who has an FASD. So raising awareness is key. Let me add a bit to that too. I was thinking about the need for diagnosis and and the need for understanding how then to implement some strategies. Because if you get early intervention in, these kids can survive. They can thrive if they can find purpose, but we've got to identify them. And that is what we don't have. And people were saying, well, you know, it's the stigma. We don't want to stigmatize our kids. And I said, but you're in the end, you're really leading them to a place of heartbreak and sadness. And because I used to work at juvenile drug court, Oahu, first district, and I saw these kids as teenagers and it was heartbreaking because they had no clue why this was happening. They couldn't understand what was happening to them or why. What are some of the beautiful moments that you have? There must be some really good stories or some really beautiful moments that you have as parents. Can you share some of those stories? Definitely, a lot of times we get hung up in looking at what people can't do, but but what about what they can do? And one of the things that we see in our daughter and one, one of the things that we see in people that are impacted by FASDs in general is that a lot of times they love to be helpful. They do. They love to be helpful. They love to engage. They love to help their teachers. They love to help their family. They like to please people, which sometimes can be exploited. But on the upside, they tend to be very engaged. And I'll tell you, if you you were to meet our daughter, if you were to come up to our community up here on the North Shore, everywhere we go, no kidding, doesn't matter the day, doesn't matter the time or the location, 
people stop and they say hello to Briar and they call her by name. They know her. Hi, Briar. Hey, Briar. And it's because she makes the effort wherever she is to say hello, auntie. Hello, uncle. You know, and, and, and she talks to people all over the place. Again, you know, this is a, a blessing and a curse. You know, the concept of somebody being a stranger is just completely foreign to her. She sees nobody as a stranger. But on the upside, that's a great thing because she's so very, very friendly. Briar has taught us to be so much more compassionate and empathetic and understanding for those who maybe don't have a visible disability or special need or extra awesomeness, whatever you want to call it. Briar, like Jeremy mentioned, there's no fear for loving people. There's no boundary for, oh, well, they're a little bit different than me, so I'm not going to reach out or, oh, they look different than I do, so I'm not going to reach out. We were recently somewhere and there was a teenager who was frustrated and was kind of getting emotional and crying over something. We did not know her and Briar just walked over and gave her a hug. And everyone around was looking and thinking, oh, I wish that I could have just had that courage to go over and hug someone who was having a hard day. And and those things don't phase Briar. She just loves openly. And because of that, she is so loved in return. Jeremy and Tara Daniel, Dr. Ann Yabusaki, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thanks, Russell. Thank you, Russell. Thank you, Russell. That was uh, HPR's Russell Subiono. He was talking with Dr. Ann Yabusaki and Jeremy and Tara Daniel. Uh, that couple has a child with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Um, today is the last day to register for the Hawaii FASD Action Group Conference, which will be held next Friday, September 15th, at the Oahu Veterans Center. We'll have a link uh, on the conversation page of our website later today. we have to go now but tomorrow we hope to get an update from the state health department on the surging covid cases and we've got a show about lahaina memories coming up at the end of the week got a memory about lahaina town you'd like to share leave it on our talkback line 808-792-8217 email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org you can find our archive shows online on our website or by searching for the conversation on spotify and apple or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.